Just going to send another round of panelist invitations. I recommend that you take them. One moment while I just confirm that we're live on Facebook. But welcome everyone. I'm just going to send out another round of panel invitations. I recommend you take them if you have the chance. Um, they are a good way to ask questions more directly, to see, to be seen. Always a good fun time. Um, if you want to ask questions in chat, that is fine. We will be monitoring the chats on both Facebook and Zoom, so feel free to ask questions, and when Rabbi Silver pauses for questions, we will uh, get to them. Okay, great. Thank you. Let's begin. The, um, so the, towards the end of chapter 41, after Yosef has interpreted the dreams of Paro to his great satisfaction, Paro then turns to first to his people and says, there's nobody like this. Can you find someone who has the spirit of God within him? Ruach Elohim Bo, and then in the 30, Pasuk Lamed 10, in 39, uh, Yosef, uh, he says to Yosef, he begins to talk to Yosef, and this is a rather long speech, it's 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, etc. Some of this is a direct speech of Paro, and some is the narrator speaking, but what's curious is that uh, Paro seems very interested in Yosef taking this position. He um, says, there's nobody like you. Then he says, you'll be you'll be in charge of my house. Interesting phrase. But it means through your speech, the plain meaning is through your speech, will people be, be fed or be taken care of? Only the, only the throne is above you. And then he says again to Yosef, See, I've placed you over the land of Egypt. Takes off his ring, gives his ring to Yosef, puts him into the Mirkevet HaMishneh, the chariot of the second in command, the vice was chariot. Uh, and then again in 44, Again, I'm Pharaoh, but without you, no one lifts a hand or foot. And then he gives Paro, uh, Yosef a different name. It's curious that three different times he says, Vayome Paro, even though Yosef says not a word. He says absolutely nothing. We have this sometimes in the Torah where the same person is speaking, but the, the psukim are introduced with Vayomer X. Even though there's no one, no one else is responding, you would expect one Vayomer and speech. But sometimes the Torah breaks it up, and the question is why. I don't think there's only one reason for it. There could be multiple reasons. One reason is clearly situations where we anticipate a response, but it's not there. You have that, for example, with um, with Hagar when the angel meets Hagar in the desert and says, "Go back home." Hagar says nothing. Hashem doesn't respond. Then again, the next verse, the next passage, etc. 
no response. And then finally, a third time, and presumably then she goes back. There the point is that one anticipated a response, like, yes, I'll do it. I, I agree, or something like that. But we don't have that. But over here, the question is, what, what's the point over here of this repetition, um, one could say that a response is expected, but I find that difficult because Yosef, at the end of the day, is a Hebrew slave coming out of jail. What do you mean a response is expected? Good idea, Paro. But I mean, no, I don't think that's the best way to go over here. I think it's a different point. Here's Vayome Paro is intended to intensify or to, to point out the, the desire to, of, of Paro to have Yosef work for him. And that's the Vayome, the insistence of Paro. That will be my take on it over here, as opposed to an anticipated response, which is not there. So sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other, sometimes it could be a third, a, a third reason as well. And it's always interesting to see it. And without getting into it now, this could be a whole class in and of itself to look at different places and see when this phenomenon occurs and how we can best explain it. But the point I'm getting at, which whether you agree with what I just said or not, is certainly right, which is you have over here, clearly, Paro was very anxious for Yosef to uh, take this job. His guy comes out of, out of the prison and basically he gives him his ring, he gives him a special clothing to wear, gives him a chariot, which is a symbol of Egypt. He gives him a wife. He connects him to the priestly families of the priesthood of Egypt, etc. And he says to him, you're the, outside of me, you're the, you're the main guy, he says. People, you might, you might even say the public face of the royalty is you. You go out to Egypt, you meet the people. You're going to determine how much food they get, etc. But here, just wanted to go back to what we spoke about last time, which is that here, Paro has an interest in Yosef taking the job because Yosef's interpretation is beneficial to Paro. In other words, the claim is that right from the very beginning, Paro understands what Yosef's getting at. Yosef's interpretation is not only good for Egypt. Yosef's interpretation is very good for Paro because the way Yosef already described it, he has placed all the food of Egypt into the hands control of Paro. He places it in storehouses and he guards it, the Shamaro. So Paro will, at the end of the seven years, uh, have total control of all the Lechem. If you control the Lechem, you control the country. That was Joseph's dream, first dream. The sheaves bowed down to the sheep which continues to stand and bow down, he stands. And that's what's going on over here. So this is in point number one. Uh, point number two, just as an aside, is that this is a wonderful example of what we encounter when we study Megillah and Esther. Because obviously over here, the way it describes Joseph in the land of Egypt um, is precisely parallel to what the Megillah says about Haman in chapter six of the Megillah. Haman comes to the king to tell the king, as it were, to execute Mordechai before, 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 before lunch is served or whatever. And before he gets a chance to tell the king to kill Mordechai so that they can have a pleasant meal and not have Mordechai on his mind, 
the king says to Haman in chapter six, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? And of course, the, the Megillah tells us what Haman is thinking. Haman thinks it's got to be me. Who else could it be but me? I'm so important. So he says that the person that the king wishes to honor should be given uh, the um, should be given the, the clothing of the king and giving the horse of the king and being driven around the land of uh, Itzrayim, the uh, land of uh, Parasumadai. And they should say, someone should call out, this was what happens to the one the king wishes to honor. He's already been given the ring of the king earlier to, uh, to when the Haman decides to kill all the Jews in chapter three. So he has the ring already. And of course, it's exactly parallel to what we have with Yosef. It's one of the many parallels. Yosef is driven around the land of Egypt. He's given the chariot of the king. The king dresses him and he's given the ring of the king. And not only that, when they take Joseph around the land of Egypt, we have, uh, let's find this verse, um, verse number 43. And they cried out the word Avrech, whatever Avrech means. It could be, maybe it means from Bera, bow down. Or maybe it means uh, nobleman. The word Raka in, the, in, the, in, in Aramaic, Rika or Raka, means a noble. So it could be noble or, or free person. It could be father noble. It's what Joseph says later to his brothers, God made me an Avriparo. But in any event, it's calling out something of some kind of honorific relating to Joseph. So it's exactly parallel, actually, to the story of Haman. It's a very good example. Of course, in the case of Haman, to his surprise, it's not him that the king speaks of or thinks of. It's rather Mordechai. It's his job to do this, but that's the Megillah. Another good example of very clear parallel, the Megillah is playing off the story of, of Yosef. But anyway, any coming back to the first point, um, yeah, so they, they both have an interest here. Joseph has one interest to get out of jail, basically, to stay out of jail or to come out of jail. That's his interest. Um, actually, very modern thought that the leader of the country wants to be a high position to stay out of jail. That, that we, we've encountered recently in the news in more than one place. But um, you have, um, so Joseph has an interest in, in obviously. And Joseph dreamt as a, as a, young, as a young man that, um, that uh, you know, the sheaves bow down to him, the sun, the moon, the stars bow down to him. Those are his dreams. So he, he's ambitious. And now he has his opportunity. And the other point that I was emphasizing was, but with the opportunity comes all kinds of responsibilities. In other words, he's, he ends up marrying the daughter of the priest whose name happens to be Potifera. And her name is Osnat. Now the name Osnat, the word son in biblical Hebrew means a tragedy or misfortune. And so he's married to misfortune, to miss misfortune, one might say. And uh, he's connected to the priesthood, which makes sense because Joseph said to Paro, it's not me who interprets your dream, it's God. God will, will soothe Paro, God will solve Paro's problems, but God is working through Joseph. That's very clear. God will solve your problems. Let me tell you the interpretation. So it makes total sense that Paro would connect Joseph to the priesthood. And I suggested last time that he does so for a different reason, because connecting him to the priesthood possibly 
makes it more uh, sense, makes it more possible to have this foreigner come and and, and rise to this extremely powerful position within the land of Mitzrayim. We know that the Mitzrayim are not crazy about outsiders, but this way, okay, he's an outsider, but he's also a holy man. So this is a way for Paro to, to be able to put the person in power that will help primarily Paro and also help the people. So that's what, just to summarize what we had last time. Before I stop and take some comments or questions, I have one other small comment to make, just to notice something. And this is in verse number 46. So Yosef is in the chariot now and all of these, the dress, the, the clothing, the wife, the name, he gives him a different name, he gives him a different name. Every manifestation of being the Egyptian is what Joseph is and Paro wants that. He wants Joseph to be the Egyptian, not to be the foreigner. We got all that. And then we have verse number 46. So the Torah tells us how old Joseph is when he achieves this position of prominence. Joseph is 30 years old. So in other words, we first encountered Joseph when he's 17 years old, back in chapter 37, and now we're told he's 30. So in the course of these 13 years, he was sold as a slave. He rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar. He's in jail for some amount of time. We don't know how long, at least two years, possibly more. And now he's 30 years old. And the question is, why does the Torah tell us that he's 30 years old? Why is that important? So I want to mention something that Devorah suggested to me once. I don't know if it's written anywhere. It's her suggestion. Could be. And I'll tell you what it is. This is a complete digression, but I'll tell you what it is. We all know that when the promise of the, the covenantal promise is made to Avraham back in chapter 15, that God said to Avraham back in chapter 15, that your children will be avadun uh, ve'inuotam, they'll be strangers, oppressed, enslaved for 400 years. It says 400 years, And we also know, presumably, and if we don't, we now will know it in one second, that the Torah in the book of Shemot, uh, in chapter, I believe it's chapter 12, uh, says that the Jews were in Israel, the, I'll read it, chapter 12 in Exodus, verse number 40. They were in the land of Egypt for 430 years. That's what it says. So 400 and 430, that's one problem. That's not our problem. The problem is how do you get to 430? Because when you look at the story, there's no way you get to 430. Because we know that Jacob went down to Mitzrayim with the family, right? And then it says that the new Pharaoh arose after the death of Joseph and his brothers. And then it gives us a genealogy, actually. Let's say that it goes through, through three of the tribes. Let's say the tribe of Levi. So Levi came down at some point to the land of Egypt. And then Levi had a son whose name was Kahat. I'm choosing one of his children, Kahat. And Kahat has a son. Amram, and Amram had two sons, Moshe and Aaron, and the daughter Miriam. 
and Moshe takes the people out of Egypt. So how in the world do you get to 430 years? How can you possibly get to 430 years? They're born, each child is born when the parent is some, of some age. So the, you count up the numbers, it, can't, it comes no, nowhere close to 430. In fact, the tradition, the Jewish tradition found in several places in the Talmud and elsewhere in Midrashim, says there were 210 years of slavery. 210, uh, not 430. So the question is, how do you get to the number 430? So Kasuto has a thought about it. Here's Kasuto's thought, and then Devorah had a thought. Now, obviously, it can't be, be 430, but what, how do you get to 430? So Kasuto's thought, now part of it is based on Kasuto's general theory about the numbers of the Bible, which we're not going to get into now. But what Kasuto says is this, if you look at the, the, the years that, let's say Levi, let's say Levi's son Kahat, let's find how, how old, how many years did Kahat live? So let's see, that could be down in chapter six. A little digression here. Uh, chapter six of the book of Shemot. Let's see, it tells the different names and actually mentions how many years he lived, which is very striking. So it says that he lived, um, let's see, can I, yes. Uh, no, first says how many years Levi lived. Levi lived 137 years. And then it says Kahat, and the years of Kahat were 133 years. Those are the only ones that the years are given. And then you get to Amram, he lived 137 years. Then at the end of it, it says Moshe and Aaron, that Moshe was 80, and Aaron was 83 years old when they stood before Paro. That's what it says. Um, that's what it says. I find that verse. That verse, I think, is later. That Moshe was 80, and Aaron is 83 years old. Okay, that's what it says. Fine. So now, here's what Kasuto says. Kasutos makes the claim. We know Levi came down to Egypt at some point in his life. Now, Kasuto's point is that the building block of the, all these genealogies, these big numbers, is the number 60. It's a very important Babylonian number. Number 60 is the number. He says, if you subtract, if you assume that Levi came down at age 60 and you add up the years that Levi was there, the years that of Kahat, the years of Amram, and the 83 years of Aaron, it turns out if you add them up, it's 430. That's how we get to 430. And his point, I presume, is that even though the years overlap, which they do overlap, obviously, but in a certain sense, it's true because the suffering doesn't overlap. In other words, there's also this thing as a sum total of suffering. Everybody suffers separately. So if you add up the, the game with Abdut and Enu, if you add those numbers up, that's why it gives those numbers. Aaron is 83 years old. It gives those numbers because you add up the numbers and subtract 60 from Wavy, you end up to 430. That's, that was Kasuto's argument, how you get to 430. So Devorah had a different argument. She thinks it's the following. She suggested something different. Who knows? She said, it, the Torah says that Joseph was 30 years old when he became the viceroy of Egypt, right? He's 30 years old. And Joseph lives for 110 years. So if you count, if you count from the time that Joseph becomes king, that's when the Gullus begins. If you count from there, you have the 80 of Joseph, 
if you count the 80 of Moses, not Aaron, but you count the 80 of Moses who takes them out, right? Joseph and Moses, this connection is there. We'll get to some other point. And then you add up the other, the other numbers of, of Kahat and Amram, it turns out to be 430. So that's her claim. It's an interesting claim. Well, I mean, the, the question is a very good question. But the, the, the nice thing about both interpretations, whichever one you accept or neither, but it does address a very simple question, which is why the Torah tells us this, actually. Why mention these 30 years old? And even more striking is that the only years that are mentioned in Exodus are the years of Levi, Kahat, Amra, Moshe, and Aaron. There's no other, no other years. We don't know where the other people lived. Only those people. But what's driving both interpretations is a sensitivity to, to why the Torah says, and it says how old Joseph was when he dies. He's 110. So that is, and anyway, I pointed out as an interesting digression, something to think about. Let me stop for a second and take comments or questions, then we move forward. Yes. I would like, I would like to say something. Yes. Um, can, I? can I just get through the questions in chat first? All right, take the chat first. Go ahead. Sure. All right. Go back so, to go ahead. Okay, just uh, quickly um, in chat, uh, Neville Goldman says, uh, Neville Goldstein says, I would think that the conversos could find strength and resonance with Yosef's story. Well, the story of Joseph is the story, a part of it is, I mean, and we'll get to this later in the year. Of course, Joseph, look, Joseph is, you want to say he's forced to, he's, he, I mean, he has a choice here, but it's not much of a choice to go back to jail. The issue with Joseph, one of the core issues of Joseph is the degree to which Joseph is a Jew or, or, or not a Jew. Certainly every external manifestation, he's not a Jew. That's clear. And he says explicitly, I want to forget my past. That's for sure. On the other hand, we know the story of Mrs. Potiphar. He can't, on some moral level, ethical level, he can't be an Egyptian. He, he, he chooses not to be. And then, of course, what the whole story is setting up is later, you know, why does Joseph, look, let me put it, put it to this way. The person who says, uh, the person who says, um, God has enabled me to forget my, my father's house is the same person that the next to last pasuk of this book, Joseph says to the brothers, one day God will redeem us and bring us back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and take me with you. So the question is very stark question. How could it be the same person who says, thank God I could forget my father's house is the same guy who says in the next to last verse of the book, he makes the brothers swear when God saves us from this place and brings us back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's his father, make sure you take me with you. I'm, what, I, I'm imposing an oath upon you. So of course the question is, how did he move from point A to point B? That's one of the central questions. Could Joseph had said no to uh, Paro? Well, yeah, you can say no to Paro, I presume, and Paro will probably send you back to jail. I mean, you can't, what does it mean to say no? You can, you can slit your wrist, basically, but that's a choice. But I'm saying it's not much of a choice. And Joseph does want to get out of the jail. He begged the butler to get him out of there. I'm an innocent victim, he says. So yes, it comes with a cost. Whether Joseph realizes the cost or not, I don't know. Whether Joseph realizes that Joseph is there to serve power. With all the trappings of power, with the chariot and with the clothing and with the new name and all that stuff, the point of this story and the point of the Megillah 
There have been many things said about the Megillah. It's a prototype for the Jew living in exile. In some sense, that's true. But the point of the Megillah is, when you live in the land of Achashverosh, you are subject to Achashverosh. And he may be very nice to you one day when it suits his interests. But when it doesn't suit his interests, he can turn on you in one second flat because you have no significance to him because Achashverosh only cares about one thing, which is Achashverosh. And he happens to be a bad guy on top of it. So the fact is, that's the story over here. Joseph will do very well as long as he brings the money and the, and the cattle and the land to Pharaoh. What happens when Pharaoh has all those things? That's the problem. He doesn't need you anymore. When he doesn't need you anymore, you suddenly discover that you have no standing. You, you, can't, you can't even speak to Pharaoh anymore. So we'll, we'll see, that's part of the story. So does he have a choice? You know, we have choices sometimes, but the choices are very, you know, one choice is to be a free human being and have a, a, a real status in the land. And at least for a while to be very important and maybe Joseph thinks forever. And the alternative is to stay, spend the rest of your life in someone's dungeon. So I don't think it's too much of a choice for Joseph. There might be some people who say, I'll stay in the dungeon, but uh, in, in, in point of fact, Joseph does not. Is there anybody else? I could, I wanted to say something. Yeah, go ahead. May I? Yes. My, my Hebrew deteriorated since I'm in Israel. So let me see if I can express myself clearly. I think Yosef has a date of 30 years. This is not the only one. We have 17 when he came to Egypt. Is this correct? Yes. So uh, an answer should be given to both. And here is a suggestion. Go ahead. And um, this is connected to his dreams. When he dreamt that 11 uh, stars and the moon and the sun are going to bow to him, this dream never materialized because his mother never was supposed to bow, right? Now, usually narratives don't tell about dreams which don't materialize. Usually when we tell about dreams, it's about their how is the materialization, realization? Yes. yes, for sure. So here is the answer for the two questions. Because if you count how many years passed from 17 to 30, 13. you have 13. And Yosef dreamt that 13 objects are going to bow to him. His father um, interpreted it wrongly as if your mother and myself and your brothers are going to bow, but obviously this wasn't the right solution. But as Yosef himself knew, in dreams, objects, uh, I mean, in, in dreams, units of time symbolize number of objects. If you have, or vice versa, if you have three, I don't know what on your head, Sarah Mashkim, Sarah Ophim, so in three days, Yes. Something will happen to you. If you have seven um, cows in seven years, something yes. will happen to you. So here is the same um, uh, same technique is applied by Yosef dreams because he was uh, dreaming about 13 objects and it, it really materialized after 60, uh, 13 years. Okay, I hear you. Yes, and, it's very interesting. Uh, so I thought maybe this is the way of 
okay, I have a different solution to the problem, but I will we'll get there later on. And when I get okay. there, I'll try to show why I think my solution is a good one, actually. But the, what you say is very interesting. I never thought of it. Thank you for that. It's an I heard thought. it from somebody. I'm not that clever. Whatever it is, whoever it's said it. It's an interesting thought. I just heard to think it. About. Thanks in any event, either for your thought or conveying it, either way. Um, okay, I'll, I'll get back to the dreams because the dreams are obviously central to what happens later on. And there's a long Ramban that we'll have to look at. It's a very important Ramban, but it will, we'll get there. Okay, so now let's continue our story over here. So Joseph is now appointed to this position. Can I say something? Yes. I, I, um, I, I think uh, the point you made about how could he both say, you know, Nashani Elohim and, and in the end, the second to the last Pasuk. I think he was trying to forget the emotional pain that he had, not necessarily the uh, moral or religious code that his father had instilled with him. That's why he could have the potifar and, and feel the, the strength of the moral teachings that his father had instilled with him and have find the strength to run away. But he had been traumatized by his family and that's what he was trying to overcome and leave and try to leave behind him. I think those are two divergent um, threads in his life. And he's yeah, always- Nonetheless, no, no, there's no question that his, and that's what the Midrash is getting at by Yimaim, he saw his father's image. There's no question that Yosef training or upbringing or whatever is what enables him uh, to uh, reject Mrs. Potiphar. Rejecting Mrs. Potiphar is rejecting Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim sees and takes. So there's no question about that. So that's okay, that's true. He, the, the, some of the values that he was brought up with no doubt are a function of his upbringing. And we should never forget that the Torah makes the point that Jacob was in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the 17 comes back again. Joseph was with his father for the first 17 years of Joseph's life and the last 17 years of Jacob's life. Uh, right. And we'll come back to that later on, which suggests certainly the influence of Yaakov on Yosef, which is one of the keys to this whole story, which we have to get there. But having said all that, he still does um, say, Nashani Elohim. He still says, I want to forget Beit David, whatever. He doesn't want anything to do with his father's house. And we understand it perfectly. They try to kill him. Right. And it's, at the time in his life, it's very unpleasant. He has some good memories, perhaps, but he wants to forget it. And then at the end of it, he says, I want to be reunited with you. So there's something going on here in the story, but we'll have to wait. There's a, you know, it doesn't happen at one point in time. And what is it, what enables Joseph to, to be reunited with the family is what the story is largely about. And I just wanted to re-emphasize a very important point for the story, which is that without Joseph, there's no family. Remember that Jacob's dream is that- It's the 12. House, buy it. Everybody's gotta be included. And most certainly his most beloved child and most talented child's gotta be included. So if he's not included, Jacob's dream will not come to fruition. Jacob's idea of building the bayit. So Jacob has to find some way to build the bayit, which is not simple, because as we will see, the brothers don't basically trust Joseph. Forget, forget that, don't like him, they don't trust him. They think he has an in for them in the very last chapter of this book, they think he's gonna plans to kill them after Jacob dies. So there's a lot of work to be done here in terms of our understanding what, what is changing in the story. Uh, 
The other point I want to make is that when um, uh, Paro gives him all of those um, objects of being uh, royalty, I think he's also trying, he realized this guy was a slave five minutes ago and he has to um, burnish his image so that the people will accept him. There was a very caste society there in Egypt. And in order that he's now going to be accepted by the people as the second to the king, he has to look the part. He has to have all the accoutrements of that. And the more uh, he can give, Paro can give him of his, his uh, ring and his this and his that so that he looks the part, that serves Paro's purpose also. That's, that's, that's certainly true. There's no, no question. Of course, that's true. That's clear. Is where the, Rabbi, the, can the I symbols of that? Egypt. He has an Egyptian name, an Egyptian chariot, an Egyptian wife, he's the priesthood. He wants to convert Joseph into an Egyptian because the Egyptian is the one who accepts the stranger. And totally destroy his the fact that he is um, a slave. I think when later on, when Yosef's family comes down, there's nobody more overjoyed than Paro because now he's He's he is Yichus. He's not just a, a nameless slave that was that he scooped up, but he really is a a uh, respectable person. I think it works to Paro's to burnish his image, Yosef's image, that he's I not have to a nobody. You there, I think it's pretty clear that Paro's not so happy with it. We'll get to when the brothers come down, the family comes down. Paro's not crazy about it. that. That actually is when. The split of Paro and Joseph takes place when the family comes down. You'll okay. see it. That's when the split. Okay. I mean, it's going to happen inevitably anyway, because Joseph at some point doesn't serve Paro's needs. And once he doesn't serve Paro's needs, Paro will discard him. But that story itself, we'll get there. That's that's a critical story. That's when Joseph, the brothers are a liability for Joseph. Because Joseph wants to protect his brothers. Joseph wants the brothers to be near him, Eretz Goshen. Joseph wants them to, to have a, an occupation they can have as Hebrews in the land of Egypt. And Paro has no interest in that. He says, you, you'll see it. Once you see it, it's obvious, but it's not obvious until you see it. Paro doesn't want that. Paro wants to assimilate them into the land of Egypt. He doesn't want them separate. Because among other things, he doesn't want Joseph to have a little power base of his own. Kings don't like that, that you have your own little power base. And when they think you have a little power base, usually your uh, life expectancy goes down tremendously. Now, he still needs you, Joseph. But the point is, the moment he doesn't need him anymore is when Joseph is going to be out. But the brothers are, bigodol, I would say, a, a liability and a problem. And Joseph actually has to make a choice. How much can he help the brothers? He, he tells them what to say to Paro. They say, well, we'll see it. And Paro goes along with it, but he doesn't like it. And he makes that very clear that it's a problem. You know, it's not what I wanted. He had a different vision for the brothers. Uh, he, he thinks they may be, look, if they're 10, he's got 11 brothers and we know how talented Joseph is. Maybe the brothers can also help him out. That's what he says. You know, maybe they'll work for me too. I have, I have jobs for them also. He makes it explicit actually. So it's, 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 it's the opposite actually, that the brothers coming down are a problem, a big one for Joe. And we'll see it. Once you see it, it's, it'll be clear. Anyway. Uh, Rabbi, one, one interjection. 
Yes. Yeah. Only, only since we we went back to the Nashani and Menashe and forgetfulness, um, there's a trope um, that's that's probably built on this uh, Joseph story and the the emphasis on the forgetfulness when he's in exile. I mean, Hercules in Roman mythology drinks the waters of forgetfulness when he's in exile, and then he, of course gets, uh, tries, they try to marry him off, get a wife. They keep feeding him the waters of forgetfulness in order that he be useful to them. And um, I think it's, there's no question in terms of chronology, which came first, the Torah came before uh, Roman mythology. And, um, and so I think that we just have to remember that yes, he, he's aware of the forgetfulness, whether it's emotional forgetfulness or whatever, but I think it's also become um, a trope with uh, exile, with exiled heroes. It's just something to be aware of. Well, the theme of forgetfulness or remembrance runs through the whole Joseph story. I mean, mm -hmm. as people, we had it with the Saramashki. Mm -hmm. Does he remember Joseph? He forgets him. He remembers him when it suits his purposes. Now we'll see that the remembering and forgetting comes up several more times in the story. It's one of the- Right, but it's when a themes. hero does the forgetting that-, that right. He was conscious. Of course, right. one who says I want to forget hasn't truly forgotten. Exactly. Yep. All right. All right. Let's, let's, let's pick up now with the end of chapter uh, 42. So now, so now it's um, one last point to repeat what I mentioned last week in verse number 50 of chapter 41. Joseph were born two children before the famine came. I just wanted to remind us that it's a way of the Torah connecting Joseph's own personal life with the larger story of the land of Egypt. He has children when the land of Egypt produces, you know, produces things. When the, but the, afterwards, he has no more children. When the land of Egypt is not stops producing, Joseph stops producing. And it's another way to strengthen the connection between Joseph on one hand and Mitzrayim on the other. They're, they're very deeply connected. Fine. Now let's pick up with verse number 30, 30 um, is it 53? 53. Verse 53. Verse 53. So the Years of famine have now begun. And we look back for one moment, back to chapter 41, verse number, uh, let's start with verse number 47, just to go back for a moment, that's important. So the, during the seven years of plenty, the land produces in, 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 in abundance. That's the sava. The word sava and the word sheva, it's the same letters, it's very interesting. So during the years of sava, sheva of sava. And during those years, so it says that during the seven years, that they says during those seven years of plenty, um, he gathered all the grain of the seven years that the land of Egypt was enjoying and stored the grain in the cities. 
He put in each city the grains of the field around it. He, produced, he collected produce in very large quantity, like the sands of the sea, till you could not measure it. It could not be measured. Here there's a dispute among the commentaries. The medieval commentaries have a dispute exactly how much was collected during the years of plenty. It says here he collected all of it. Does that mean that he collected all? Or does it mean he collected the surplus? And what happened with the non-grain? Is it just grains or non-grains? So there's a dispute. The Rashbam suggested, the Chimesh, that he collected 20%. Others say differently. Others say even during the years of plenty, he was collecting, if not all, most of the grain. And there was already, he was already doing, he was already limiting how much grain people could take even during the years of plenty. That's a dispute about how to read these verses. But in any event, he's, when there's so much, nobody's complaining. They have good portions every day. No one complains. Meanwhile, the great majority of the grain is under the control of Pharaoh through Joseph. And then we have verse number 49. I wanted to point out, by its bar, Yosef bar, he gathered the wheat, the grain, like the sand of the sea, very much, until you couldn't count it, it was beyond measure, it was beyond counting. Anybody who reads this verse, verse number 49 of chapter 41, and you've read the book of, of Rashid from the beginning, remembers that these expressions like the sand of the sea, or sand of the seashore, and too many you cannot count them, are both expressions that the Torah uses, phrases the Torah uses in regard up to the blessing of the people of Israel. He took Abraham outside and said, look at the heavens, look at the stars. Can you count them? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not, right? And then your, 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 your descendants will be as numerous, but God said to Abraham at the, at the, um, right after the binding of Isaac in chapter 22. So it's interesting that the Torah has used these, 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 these terms, which we, the reader, identify with the blessing of Israel. But now you have Joseph, and he uses exactly the same terms, but it's not about Israel. It's about the produce, the blessings of the land of Mitzrayim. And that's a very important point. At the end of the day, Joseph works day and night for Pharaoh. Joseph works to bring blessings to Mitzrayim. He's not working to bring blessings to the land of Canaan. And that it reinforces what is, I think, fairly obvious that Joseph in Mitzrayim, however you understand it, he didn't really want it this way, but at the end of the day, bottom line, he is working for Mitzrayim. He brings blessing to Mitzrayim. And that's very striking, especially given the fact that one of the points we emphasize with that in the story of Mrs. Potiphar, that you have two, two different words, the word Mu'uma and the word chutzah. And the word chutzah, of course, is brings us back to the promise made to Abraham. God took him outside, look at the stars. And Mu'uma is what God says to Abraham, the angel says at the Akedah, right? It's when the covenant is actually clinched. It's when Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, and the angel says, don't do it. So Joseph, in Mrs. Potiphar's story, the Torah emphasizes his link to the covenant. It's maybe what Debbie said before could be true, which is, in, in, in principle, there's a covenantal side to Joseph. But practically speaking, he gets up in the morning, it's 6.30 in the morning, and goes to work. 
Maybe he stops off first at the local uh, at the local temple to see his father-in-law. Who knows? But he's working all the time for Mitzrayim. He brings them the blessing of Kichol Hayam. He brings them the blessing of Chadalus Parkiyeni Mispar. That's just the reality of Joseph. Okay, now let us continue. Fine. Now Joseph's about to meet his brothers. We'll begin this week with them. Next week we'll have the last class of these sessions. Then we'll continue afterwards. You know, we, I don't want to rush through this, uh, but we'll move move forward and hopefully complete. The, if not in the end of the next semester, then the beginning of the following one. That's the plan in any event. Fine. Now, one other point, very important point: the 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 famine is everywhere. It's not just the Mitzrayim. The famine is in other lands as well. And that's verse number fifty-six. So the famine is not just in Mitzrayim. It is in Egypt, certainly, but it's elsewhere also. However, the years of plenty, the Torah never says where the years of plenty are. Um, so we know the years of plenty are in Mitzrayim. It's not at all clear that the years of plenty are in any place besides Mitzrayim. And even if they were, there's no sense that, of course, anybody would, would anticipate what's going to happen and wouldn't just eat as much as they could. But it's very not clear in the Chumash altogether that there was no sava outside of Mitzrayim. So we're in a position now where basically all the food is under the control of Joseph, under the control of Paro through Joseph. And now other peoples, nearby lands, will have to go to Mitzrayim to get food, to survive. And this, of course, sets up our story of Joseph and the brothers, the meeting with the brothers. And that's what the Chumash says. And now we have, of course, in verse number 55, all the land of Egypt was, had a ra'av. They were starving for food. They cried out to Paro. Paro, give me lechem. A very interesting verse. And Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. And then he adds, and do what he says to do. Now here the Midrash jumps in. I have to issue a caution here about the Midrash. You know, I mean, the Midrash. There is no the Midrash, the many Midrashim. Rashi is selective in his citation of Midrashim. When you're reading the Midrash through the eyes of Rashi, don't forget you're reading Rashi. And there is no other way to say this, but that there is a deep apologetic element in Rashi. There is no question about it. We can explain it in many ways, but when Rashi doesn't like you, Rashi doesn't like you. Rashi doesn't like Asaph for any number of reasons. I don't want to get into that. Some of them may be legitimate, but the fact of the matter is, Rashi doesn't like Asaph, does a hatchet job on Asaph, clearly, in terms of the pshat. Over here, Rashi makes many attempts to soften some of the story of Joseph and the brothers. Uh, this week's Torah reading of Parshat Bayezeh which I would sum up by saying it is a brutal story, actually, from a human perspective, brutal. But Rashi is always there trying to smooth it out and all have the best of intentions, etc. So we have to take that with the several tons of salt. What does it mean when Pharaoh says, tasu, do what he tells you to do? So Rashi has close various midrashim that Joseph had told the Egyptian men to become circumcised, uh, you know, because for whatever reason, he wants to, um, 
either identify or connect them to, 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 to the Jewish people, or he wants to tame some of the excesses of Egypt, which is known as the land of deep immorality. And that's the story of Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar. But it's hardly the pshat, to listen to whatever he tells you to do, and that Joseph is going to tell the men to become satamila, hardly. But what, what does Joseph tell them to do? The Chumash doesn't tell us what Joseph tells them to do here. But it does tell them what Joseph says to them in chapter 47. What he says to them to do is, A, give me all your money, B, give me all your cattle, and C, give me all your land. It's not me, by the way, it's Paro. He just works for Paro. And here there's a very important point that I'm sure is what it means here, but there's another point, which is a very important point, and it comes back to where we started today. And it's true of Achashverosh, our friend Achashverosh. Achashverosh, and that's, it's true of kingship in general. It's one of the things I talk about in my recent book. And that is that the person on top, basically, the way it works is that the guy on top, the king wants to not just retain power, but increase power. And that often is a nasty business. It means getting rid of your enemies. It means hurting a lot of people, all for his own aggrandizement. The last thing the king wants to do is to do that himself. It's always better to get somebody else to do all the dirty work, and then you can blame them. At the end of the day, Pharaoh will enslave the Egyptian people. We'll get back to this later on. It's, it, it's slavery which has a sweet side to it, but it's slavery. And if you say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, how could you enslave the Egyptian people? He no doubt would say, what, enslave? I don't know, but maybe, maybe, maybe Joseph did it. And the fact is, one of the reasons he's, he's so anxious to get Joseph to do it is because it's something he doesn't want to do. You see this in the Megillah in spades, because in the Megillah, there are two stories. One is the beginning of the Megillah, when Haman goes to the king and says, there's a bunch of people out there, and they don't keep your laws. They have their own laws, you know, and it's not worthwhile to keep them alive. If it suits the king, let's write to destroy them. Right? And not only that, I'll even pay for it. The king says, takes off his ring, he gives it to Haman. What does he say to Haman? Do to them katov b'yeinecha. Do what you think is right. He doesn't even ask who they are, by the way. Now, if he's a dope, we understand. But what if he's not stupid? Because he, why mention? He knows exactly what he's talking about. But this way, what? I don't know. He can deny, he, he can deny it, which he does later on. Who would do such a thing? And then later, then Esther goes to the king. You know, Wicked Haman had a whole army out there. The edict against the Jews still stands. Please call off the decree. And he doesn't want to call off the decree. He wants to kill Haman's army because he thinks Haman's his enemy. So the army is the army of a bad guy. Takes off his ring. He says, listen, you do what you think is right. Comes back a couple of days later. How many, how many people did the Jews kill? Jews didn't want to kill anybody, right? Jews said, let's call off the war. No, no, we can't call off the war. So we can't do that. But you do whatever you want. So at the end, it's, 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 the, same, it's, the, same, it's, the, same, it's the same business. You get someone else to do it for you. This is the theme that runs through, say, for Shmuel, David and Bathsheba. He didn't kill Oya. Yahweh, he's killed in the war. The general did it, right? That's how it works. So we understand now very well why he really wants Joseph. What better person than the outsider? What better person? Yes, he has to sell Joseph to the Egyptian people. True. But that doesn't contradict the fact that at the end of the day, 
he will, he is, was, and always will be the Ivri. He doesn't meet with the Egyptians later on. He's separate. He's the other. And that's the perfect person. I, I would even go so far as to suggest that Rahashverosh, not only is Mordechai the other, but so is Haman. He's also he's the Amalek. He's, he also has no land. He's also the other. You always want the other. The other's the best because you can always blame the other. And that explains Harold's insistence. You're the per perfect person for the job. And now do whatever Joseph tells you to do. And we, we don't know what Joseph yet, but you read chapter 47 and you see what Joseph tells them to do. Now we get to 47, we'll have to discuss that and what Joseph does, you know, and what the Chumash thinks of it. That's very important, we'll get there. In any event, that's the story here. And it's, it's another deep connection between the Megillah on one hand and the Joseph narrative on the other. Fine. Now let us continue here. Uh, and I'll stop and take some more comments or questions. Let's start with chapter, the last verse of 41 is, Bechola Aretz Baal Mitzrayma. All the earth, all the, not just Egypt, the whole, everybody's coming to Joseph. Of course, they call the Aretz. Right? They're coming, why are they coming? The whole world, the world, that's the little, I mean, the world is the world of the ancient Near East, but it doesn't matter. The point is, it's presented as the Aretz. And Joseph's going to feed the Aretz, going to feed the world. And here we encounter something very curious in the Joseph story. I mentioned last week, I just want to repeat what one, one line I mentioned last week about the Joseph story. What strikes me, I want to get into this now. I mentioned it last week, and there were some comments. The Joseph story, if you have a feeling for the Chumash, it feels different. It's a different kind of writing, actually. It's a very different kind of writing. There's a lot of statements about what people are thinking. Uh, there are long speeches in it. It's just very different. There's a complexity to it that doesn't exist elsewhere in Sefer Breshit. And uh, there are also words that appear virtually no place else. And one of the words that appears almost nowhere else in the Torah, and here appears over and over and over again, is the word Shever. Shever, Shin Bet Resh, which from the context means food, right? And Joseph is, they came to Egypt, Lushibar El Yosef, and then the next, right away, the word Shevel will appear over and over and over again. In 40, chapter 42, why do you look at each other or why do you act as if there's no problem? Different interpretations of Titra, strange word, another strange word. The word appears many, many times. Joseph is called the Mashbir. And it's also curious that the word for Tfua, for the, for the grain, is the word Bar, which is a standard word, appears elsewhere. Lushbar Bar. Now the question is, we don't have the word Shever as food in the Torah, except in one place we have it, and only in one place. Does anybody know where the word Shever appears in the five books of Moses? as food. If anybody does know it, that's pretty good, actually. I had to look it up. I didn't remember it. When I, when I saw it, I remembered it, but I didn't remember it right away. We need the hint. It's, it's, well, it's in the book of Dvarim. Let's start with that, first of all. Mm -hmm. It's in Sefer Dvarim. And it appears twice in Sefer Dvarim. It's when God instructs, in the book of Dvarim, 
without getting to the contradictions of Devarim to the other books, well, God instructs Moshe, you're passing by different lands and you're permitted to buy food for them. They say, Give me food, provide me with and I will eat it. So first of all, over there in both places, the word shever is food that you purchase. Let's start with that. It's food that you purchase. Now, why the word shever means food that you purchase, I don't know. Maybe it's related to, you know, um, maybe it's related somehow to expending the money, you know. Um, Again, it's um, it's maybe you know to to break something. Maybe when you expend money, you know, to break the bank. So I don't know. Maybe something to do with be broken with but expending something is to break. But it does appear in both contexts as food that you purchase. That's number one. That's shever. Um, so that's the first thing. It's a very unusual word, and the chumash plays with bar, which bar bar. But in thinking about the word shever. I want to, I, in the past, I've spoken a little bit about Shever, and I want to make a couple of suggestions about the word Shever, why the word Shever here is the word that the Torah uses. And you'll see, you encounter it maybe, I didn't count the number, somewhere between 14 and 20 times you have the word Shever. And I, I, I suggest that the word Shever has possibly another meaning. Um, and this comes up, uh, in the story of Gidon. The story of Gidon, the, the uh, Shofet Gidon, that's the story that appears in the book of Shoftim, and there's several chapters about Gidon. And Gidon is represented in the book of Judges as a person initially who's very frightened. He's afraid to take action. He breaks his father's idols at night. That's the prototype of the story of Abraham breaking his father's idols. It's the story of Gidon. Gidon means to pray. So God tells him at one point, Gidon's very afraid, he's supposed to fight the Midianites, he's afraid of them. And God says, listen, why don't you go down at night to the, to the, to the camp of, sneak down to the camp of Gidon, and uh, you'll hear things over there. If you're afraid to go, take your, take your young man with you. This is chapter uh, seven of uh, the book of Judges. I'll just read it to you, chapter seven. Hear what they're saying. So Gidon goes down at night, takes his, his lad with him, and people were talking, and they were Midianites from all over the place. There are loads of them all over the place. And he hears somebody talking in the camp. This is the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse number 13. I'll read you what it says. And I found this very interesting, actually. It says, Vayavo Gidon, Gidon comes to the camp of Midian. And he hears somebody telling someone else about his dream. Here we have a dream. By Yomer, Bine Chalom Chalamti, I dreamt it, I had a dream. Bine Tsuil Lechem Saurim Mitapech Mimachane Midyan, Vayavo Ara Oel, Vayakeu, Vayipol, Vayapcheu Lamala, Vinafala Oel. I had this dream. It was a loaf of barley bread, was whirling through the Midianite camp. It came to a tent and struck it. It fell, it turned it upside down, and the tent collapsed. That's my dream, he says to his friend. I have this, this loaf of bread is flying through my camp. It, uh, it, go, it, it hit into the tent, 
and the tent fell down. What do you make of the dream? He's Gideon's listening to this person tell his friend in the camp of Midian the dream. So his friend responds. This is in verse number 14 of the seventh chapter of Judges. I understand the dream. The loaf of bread represents Gidon, the Israelite. God will give into his hand Midian and the camp. Next verse. Verse, verse 15. When Gidon heard this telling of the dream, and what does Shivro mean? Shivro means his interpretation. The interpretation. You have it in you have it in, in English also, right? To break a code, right? To break a code. I was just recently uh, watching some stuff about the Second World War, about the wars of the, with the British and the people working on the codes were very central in the in the Second World War to break the German codes, actually. It's very interesting. Uh, there was a group of women, actually, who were very involved, the Reds, who were very involved in breaking the codes, very central to the war. Shivro over here has a double meaning. Because Shibar means to break. Now the loaf of bread is breaking, is breaking the tent. So Shibar can mean to break. He heard the chalom and Shivro in the breaking of the tent. But Shivro can also mean to break, to, to, to interpret. And here we come to, um, we come to uh, our story of Joseph. They're going down Shibar, Shibar, right? To get Shever. But of course, I think one of the reasons perhaps that the Torah uses the word shever over and over again is because what lies at the heart of the Joseph story and those dreams, Joseph had dreams and, other, and the dreams where the brothers would bow down to him, right? And the sun, moon and stars bowed down to him. We'll come back to that later on. And the point is, how are these dreams gonna be realized? What is the true interpretation of the dreams? And of course, the brothers can't bow down to him unless they go down. So the point is that what the Chumash is dangling in front of us is in fact um, reminding us that the story is not just about them getting food, but about the dreams, which are at the center of the story. So there I point out to you that their Shivro in the story of Gidon, the word Shivro means both the breaking, but also means the uh, interpretation, right? And it also probably means the third thing is the bread, because it's the bread that's breaking and requires interpretation. So the word shever in the Gidon narrative probably has three meanings. It means food or bread, right? And especially over here, because remember, the bread is used over here, the shever is used. It's what you're going to eat in a time of, in a time of famine. We have the expression, we say it all the time. We get up in the morning, what do we eat? Breakfast, right? Breakfast. Isn't that what we call our food in the morning? Most important meal of the day is the breakfast, the shepherd. Over here, it's the famine. And the food is, of course, the breakfast. The, 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 there's no food. So the food is the breakfast. Now I had another thought, which is, I'm wondering about this. But given the complexity of the Joseph narrative, I wonder, um, yes, to break bread is another expression we have, to break bread, for sure. Um, 
there's another there's another another possibility here which doesn't contradict which supplements what I just said. The key point I want to emphasize is that the shever can mean interpretation. But there's actually something else. Remember that in the biblical Hebrew, the shin and the sin are written identically mm-hmm. as we have it. Whatever the whole history of the shin and sin is, is a wonderful question. But the way we have it, the shin and the sin are written identically in the Torah. And we find many examples where the Torah plays with the shin and the sin. Many, many examples of it. The Torah plays with shin and sin. And I'm wondering about the following. Because we have another word, apart from shever, which is sever, sin bet resh. What is sever? Now the word sever um, appears in the Psalms. It appears in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the Megillah. And I was thinking in particular that the word sever, uh, no, sever is not, seva is called sin bet ayin, but sever, sin bet resh. We say it in the prayers all the time. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, to turn the to eyes of God. all look towards you, O God. And what does God do? There you have a play, actually. Right? Some people say it many times a day, right? Three times a day. What's it? Right? We, we long for you. We hope for you. And you respond. So there you have it, actually, the play on sever and shever. And maybe over here as well, that sever means, because the point is the bigger story. The real story over here is the hope. I mean, Jacob is still hoping to, Jacob hasn't given up yet. Yes, he's in mourning, but he doesn't accept the consolation. So the question is, is there hope over here? Is there a chance, is there a possibility Right? Not that Jacob is aware of it. So Jacob says, Shamati she has severed this hope in Mitzrayim, this sever in Mitzrayim. So I think it plays with Shever in four ways, actually. It means bread, or here over three. It means bread, it means interpretation, and it's playing on the word sever, which means to hope. You have it in the Megillah. The enemies of the Jews had thought, had Sibru, had hoped to destroy them. It's the opposite. On the contrary, the Jews were, had uh, dominance over their, their enemies. Um, okay, let me uh, take a, one more verse and I'll stop and take comments and questions. Okay, so Jacob says to the family, And now verse number three. The ten brothers of Joseph went down with Shabar Barba Mitzrayim to, let's say, purchase food in Egypt. But Benjamin, the brother of Joseph, he did not send. Jacob did not send with his brothers. For he said, perhaps misfortune will befall him. Because Joseph was lost, sent Joseph out. He never came back. He's concerned about Binyamin. And B'nai Yisrael came to purchase food, to purchase food or rations, together with the others who were coming. 
or the famine was very, uh, the famine had struck the land of Canaan. So there's a lot to say about this, and we'll pick up with this next week. Um, first of all, the fact that Jacob is so-called protecting Benjamin means that Benjamin is being treated. Benjamin in the story is a proxy for Joseph. Yes, he protected Joseph, he favored Joseph, and that did not, not end up well. And now he's doing the same thing with Binyamin, which could be one of the reasons that Joseph will do what Joseph it will do. We have to figure out the motives of Joseph are not clear at all. Not clear, we can figure it out. But I want to make one other point about these verses, and we'll stop, I'll stop with this. Notice that in verse number three, the brothers of Joseph, when 10 of them went down, the Torah calls them Joseph's brothers. The Midrashim, of course, and which Rashi cites at least, which you want to put a nice gloss on it, has the brothers going down to Egypt with the, with the hope maybe they'll find Joseph down there. I think nothing could be, in terms of the plain reading of the text, I think nothing could be farther from the truth. And I think the point is exactly the opposite point, which it says in verse number five, and the sons of Israel came down with Shibar Betocha Ba'im. They're coming down with all the other people. They're all going down for the same reason and the only reason, which is to find, which is to purchase food. There is no food. But the Chumash is setting up over here. What the Chumash does is, it's the Torah's way of saying, let me tell you, we, we, there's a new stage in the story now. It's now about Joseph and his brothers. They are going down, they are Joseph's brothers. Their intentions may not be to find Joseph. In fact, probably the farthest thing from their minds. Why would they think he's in Mitzrayim in the first place if they never sold him? Which in the simple shot, they never did. The brothers never sold Joseph. They threw him in a pit, somebody else sells him. He might be in Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim is a big place. He might be dead, he, who knows? But there's no, there's, no, there's no sense in the story at all that the brothers are searching for Joseph. But, and this is the but, but the Midrash is picking up on something something else, which I think is very important, and we'll get to that perhaps next week. We'll, we'll discuss next week. Now, I'll stop at this point and take comments or questions. Uh, one comment I want to highlight from chat is yes. from Justin Hornstein saying that BDB, uh, could you clarify, notes that Hoshea 13.13 as denoting Shevar, meaning of opportunity, translations of Mishbar there uh, differ greatly. I'd have to check that out. Um, But you have also Mishbarecha Vigawecha, you have also elsewhere. But you have it in several places, but there I think it's you know the breaking of the ocean, the breaking, the waves, and you know, that kind of thing, breakers, breakers you have. But I mean, uh, I have to check Hosea. I'm curious whether there are other plays in the Bible on Sever and Shever. I suspect there are as well. That's an interesting verse in Ashra, you know. Yeah. So you, it's the hoping, the praying, the hoping for sustenance, for food. God provides the food for us. Is there anybody else who wants to make a last comment over here? Yes, Debbie? Um, this is not something you've mentioned, but I noticed the Parshat Vayetze that we just read didn't have any Tuchot or Stumot, and neither does Miketz that we're just uh, learning. Right. Why is that? Well, it's I one mean, story. That's obvious. Why? Why didn't right? They, yeah, but there was so story, many. Right. In Miketz, that's clear here so far. But in Vayetze, there are 
home many, many. I have to look at it. I really don't know. I have to see it myself and if I can uh, say something about that. I don't know. That's a good question. It, it, it is good to look at those things. Right. At the end of the day, that's those are our paragraphs. Those are our stops. And that's important. See the way the Torah is actually written. That's very, it's a very useful thing. And sometimes you see it's written in a way that the chapter and verse have different divisions. We have divisions, the main divisions we have in our tradition are the parashiot, the spaces, different kinds of spacing. Then we have the uh, Shabbat, we have the various aliyot, that's also a stop. And then we have the sidra, we have Mikates, we have Ayigash, we have etc. Those are our stops, actually. Right. We don't have chapter and verse. Chapter and verse is not a Jewish division at all. And right. it wasn't even a non-Jewish division until about that, 11 or 1200. And the Jews only accepted with the last two, 300 years. Prior to that, it was really not accepted at all. So, but it's always good to see how different readers divide the Torah because the way you divide it often says a lot about your understanding of what we're reading. Um, okay, is there anybody else? Last comment? Otherwise, we'll start next week with jo Joseph and his brothers. We'll start with that. Um, I mean, the story is a compelling, it's one of the great stories of, great stories, period. I mean, it's, it's a, and it's a, a very different feel to it, and we it has, and it's complicated. So we will, we always have to remember the big picture. The big picture is Jacob's promise to build a family. That is to say, to build a structure where everybody gets included. Not that everybody's equal, not that everybody's so wonderful, but everybody's, to build a kind of community which will become the model for the Jewish people. The, book, the next book's about the nation. This book's about the family. Can you build a family in which every member is actually included? We only have one example so far in the book of Breshid. Those are the two sons of Judah and Tamar. They're both included, by, by definition included, because each one replaces one, one, one dead child. So they have, both have to be included. That's the first example we have. And the question is, can we now see this on the level of Jacob's family? The answer will be yes, but it's not so simple because there are deep divisions within the family. Namely, one group tried to kill somebody else. So, or sold them according to some. The plain reading is they didn't sell them. But in any event, next week, we will continue with Joseph and the brothers getting to chapter 42. Thank you very much. Stop at this point then. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, just to clarify, the this next the next upcoming class on December 11th will be the last class in the series. It will go on break for a bit and we'll resume sometime again in January. Um, if you want to watch the recording, this will be available almost immediately after class on Facebook. If you want to learn more with Rabbi Silver, his next class is on Monday at 9:30 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time, the Shabbat prayer. And if you want to learn more with Drish today, our next upcoming class is at 11 is with uh, Dr. Samuel Evans. Yeah, but I want to mention, by the way, let me just say, I'm also going to be speaking on the east side of Manhattan in the synagogue called Orachayim on Shabbat Parshat Vayeshev, which is the 17th of December. And it's in honor of Tova Buell, our devoted student Tova Buell, her birthday. And, uh, and uh, again, I'm going to be there on that Shabbat. So if anybody's in the neighborhood, you're welcome to come. All right. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you. And have a good day.